We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Aitlin is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up, goes for the end zone. Olsen! Touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. Keep pounding on three. One, two, three. Keep It's another edition of the Roar podcast on Blue Wire. John Ellis, Billy Marshall, we are your hosts. Thank you so much once again for being a part of our community here on Blue Wire. Can't thank you enough. Good, good show in terms of draft analysis. Dane Brugler from The Athletic joins the show once again. He was on with us last year during draft season, gave us some great insight, intel, and a lot of it came to fruition. He's one of the best in the business. He writes for TheAthletic.com, which y'all know very well out there. If you don't subscribe, do it, because he has just released the 2022 NFL Draft Guide, better known as The Beast. 400 scouting reports in total. NFL verified testing data for 1,700 prospects. Dane Brugler from The Athletic is our guest, and we're pleased to have him. Dane, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I appreciate the kind words uh, about the, the draft guide. It's something uh, very, very proud of. Uh, the feedback has been tremendous so far. And uh, like you said, you know, all you need is an athletic subscription, and it's included as part of it. So if, uh, if you're interested in the NFL draft at all, I promise you, you will not be disappointed with uh, uh, all the information that's included in that guide. Absolutely. It's our pleasure to talk about all the work you do here during this draft process, namely on quarterbacks. Because, Dane, as we get into this discussion, we're going to talk about a number of position groups of interest to fans for the Panthers and around the NFL. But the quarterback group, to me, and I think many share this opinion. I'm not alone. I'm not a lone wolf here. We're just not there yet in terms of seeing one guy that strikes you as, okay, he can take you places on his back. A lot of guys don't have that early on. We get that. But this class in particular, starting with Kenny Pickett, Carolina's got a lot of interest apparently at number six there. I think that's a little high. But I want to hear your side of things. How have you scouted him? What have you seen from Kenny Pickett on tape at Pitt? And how do you think that game translates to the pro level in terms of understanding the NFL game? Yeah, and I mean, just an overview of this quarterback position this year. It's really complicated because you all these guys, you could poke holes in them. It's not hard. Um, you know, it's it's much different than last year's class. 
But I do think that each one of these players brings something a little bit unique uh, with, with what they offer, what they can be at the next level. And with Kenny Pickett, um, and I, I spent a, a, I had a long conversation with uh, Coach Whipple uh, about Kenny Pickett, just trying to figure out, okay, well, why now? You know, what the the first four years, and he was his twenty twenty tape was was good. It wasn't as good as what he did in 2021, but his 2020 tape was good. I mean, we viewed him as a early day three type of prospect. Um, so, but what was that, what was that jump? You know, why in year five did he make this jump? And uh, you know, there's so many factors involved, but you know, talking to coach Whipple about it, he just said, when you play the quarterback position, it takes time. Uh, you know, experience just does not happen overnight. And he kept, kept hitting on that. Uh, in terms of understanding what the defense is trying to do, understanding what, uh, you know, the blocking scheme, understanding where your receivers are going to be. And I think that's what gives Kenny Pickett a little bit of a leg up um, with some of these other players is he has a better understanding of defensive coverages, uh, of pressure packages, of what the offense wants to do. And I, I think you see that on tape with his awareness. I, I think he has a, just a, very, a heightened awareness of everything going on. And there are times where he gets a little bit skittish in the pocket and that, you know, comes from the offensive line being such an issue for uh, the, the uh, Pitt Panthers in past years. And I, there's a little bit of uh, it's some carryover where he's still, you know, the uh, uh, internal clock is the alarm ball, uh, bells are going off saying, Hey, get out of here. Cause the, the pass rush is coming. And you see that on tape where he's looking around and saying, okay, I just need to get out of here. Um, and, and that's something that he's needs to mature and keep continue to get better at. But um, you know, he's a player that I, I think that from uh, the neck up has a lot of what you're looking for. The arm is good. It's not great, um, but I think it's good enough. And I think he has the functional mobility where he can buy those extra half seconds. He can move the pocket uh, and, and make throws outside of uh, outside of structure. And then I think the accuracy, the touch, um, I, I think that's something that stands out as a positive as well. So with Kenny Pickett, I think it's it's easy to like him. I think it's hard to love him. And it, he's a guy that I think can come in, start games. Uh, I, I think he's a better than, you know, like a Teddy Bridgewater. Like he's a better starter than that, in my opinion. Now, can he be a guy that leads you to the Super Bowl? That That's hard to convince yourself of. You know, that, that's hard to get on board with something like that. Is he good enough to, you know, contend for the division and playoffs? Yes, I think he is on that level. But it, it, is that his ceiling? Uh, that, that's, that's where you kind of get – it gets a little tough with Kenny Pickett, but history and in talking with teams, I, everyone tells me these quarterbacks are going high and it's hard because I don't have these guys ranked high. I don't have a quarterback ranked in my top, you know, 28, 29, something like that. And, and so, but everyone tells me around the league that I talk to guys that I trust that are, you know, always straightforward with me. They think that quarterbacks are going high in this draft. And of course it probably starts with six uh, in Carolina. So things are going to get really interesting in that top 10 when we talk about these quarterbacks. All right, Malik Willis. It's a guy that's captivated all of us right now in terms of what he can do, what the ceiling is. Saw him at the Pro Day, chopping it up, having a great time after throwing 60-yard bombs just in total command. But it's Pro Day, and it's not live competition. To that point, when you go back and look at the live action, some very good things on tape. Nice arm. Boy, he's got a good arm. Ability to escape, bonus yards in the run game. But the offense itself, to me, it didn't look highly translatable to the NFL game, which is not Malik's fault, by the way. What's the challenge for Malik here? Where's the upside? Where's the ceiling? And can he come right in and start as a first-round draft pick? Or would it serve him and his team better 
to sit him for a year and let him come along and learn the game. Yeah, and I, I think uh, to your point, I, a lot of Malik Willis, um, when you look at um, you know, his issues, the concerns, it's not that he's deficient in those areas. It's more that he's unproven in those areas. Um, and it's something that, you know, we, we saw, we see it on uh, all the time, uh, you know, on film where uh, if that first read's not there, we see a lot of times where he just, the field vision is not there for him to make, go through those reads and understand where the vulnerable spot on the defense is, where the open zone is going to be. Uh, that anticipation just hasn't been there. But I, I mean, to your point, the offense really didn't uh, help him with that uh, in college. And so there's so many steps of playing the quarterback position where Malik Willis is just unproven right now. Um, and we saw it down the stretch. Uh, we saw it, uh, you know, uh, against better competition um, on, on film. Uh, and, and frankly, I thought, I thought 2020 was better film than 2021 for Malik Willis. So, uh, but again, when you have the athleticism that he has, the arm that he has, uh, and you look at what he does really well, it's easy to get excited about what he is and what he could continue to grow into. And, and that's what gets you excited about Malik Willis. Now, I mean, I, I, this guy needs a red shirt. I mean, I, I don't even think we should be even talking about him starting in year one. Um, now, I, I, you don't really try to make that decision now. You let him go to camp and figure all that out. But I think it's a realistic expectation now before the draft to say this guy is probably not going to help us in year one. That's just, you know, he's going to need some time before, uh, you know, we feel comfortable putting him out there and, you know, him finding uh, any type of success. So uh, it, it's tough with Malik Willis. I, I do think that, uh, there are a few spots, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's necessarily a bad spot for him, um, you know, because I think no matter where he goes, you're going to cater your offense a little bit around him and what he does best and what he's used to uh, as you kind of ease him into uh, NFL life. So I, I'm not sure there's necessarily one spot where it's like, oh, yeah, he needs to go there or can't go there. It's it, No matter where he goes, the offensive coordinator, everyone's going to have to be on the same page in terms of catering the offense to it's what's going to help him ease him into uh, what it means to be an NFL quarterback. And so uh, could that be at number six? I, sure. I, I, I It's not something that you should rule out, uh, but I could just as easily see him go eight to Atlanta or, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, even with the saints at 16 or the Steelers at 20, um, I mean, there's so many landing spots where you could, you know, see it happening. I, it's at least a possibility. All right, another guy that's getting a lot of attention is Matt Corral. His stock seems to be rising, and it's a guy that played, of course, under Lane Kiffin. Some of the things I like about him, obviously, I think we all agree on this, that he's got a nice release, a good quick release on those throws, an RPO type of system. Uh, The frame, and you've written about this too in terms of the size. I mean, he's six foot, just a little over 210, I think. There's some concerns there, I think, about the frame. But when you put on the tape and you look at what he could do at Ole Miss and how that translates on tape, What's your analysis on Matt Corral? First round pick or maybe closer to the second? I think he's more of a second. Um, I, you, you never rule out quarterbacks, especially you know, with that fifth year option in the first, um, you know, a team trading in the back end of round one uh, to get that fifth year option. It, 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 it makes sense if you really believe in a guy. Um, and, and Matt Corral, I think there are certain elements of his game that you can believe in. I think he's a very instinctive athlete. Um, and, and you mentioned it with his release. I think everything that he does is quick. You know, it reminds me of a shortstop in baseball, uh, you know, with his ball handling skills and, you know, the way his uh, everything's quick from his feet uh, to his release, to his eyes, uh, it's everything is really quick. And so now sometimes it's too quick uh, where, you know, he's 
uh, it, you know, he, he knows where he's going with before the snap is even, uh, is even made. You know, he, he has, it, it's not based off of anything except that's where he wants to go. And so post snap decision-making is something that, you know, we talked about it with Malik Willis. It's something that with Matt Corral is going to be a big issue for him as well. Uh, just in terms of maturing that, that part of his game and becoming better in that. So um, there's a lot to like about uh, Corral and his athleticism. It's an integral part of his game. I, I think off the field, there, there are certain things that, um, you know, in terms of him coming in and is he a guy you believe will be a leader of your locker room? Uh, you know, guys, a, a guy that, you know, 30 year old uh, offensive lineman will be wanting to play for that type of thing. Um, he's some, something that all of his former teammates all harp on is how tough he is. And that's something that uh, you can really rally behind with, with him is just his toughness and, you know, how he's going to uh, gut it out for his teammates and things like that. So uh, there, there's plenty of things in, in the, in this pros uh, uh, category, uh, why it's easy to like Matt Corral, why you could see him finding success at the next level. Uh, but it's also going to take some time uh, for him to adapt and, you know, do some NFL level uh, things. Um, it's, it, it's something that will take time and why I think he's more likely he's a second round pick and a guy that, uh, uh, you know, another guy that we probably shouldn't see in year one. Once again, we're joined by Dane Brugler of the athletic and Dane, another position that naturally gets pushed up uh, towards uh you know, draft season are the offensive line and specifically the offensive tackle. And that's a position that Carolina has uh, been grossly uh, missing since Jordan Gross uh, retired in 2013. And I even saw reports that Rashid Walker from Penn State could go in the first. I thought that was a little interesting, but I want to focus on like the next tier of guys behind, uh, you know, Iquan O'Neal, Cross and Penning. Uh, and then that group includes Raymond Smith, Falele Lucas and, uh, and Petit Freer and Walker, of course, um, are those like the next group of guys that you could see as potential starters here in the back half of whether it's like the first round or on day two? Yeah. And, you know, I think that group, um, obviously there are a lot of different types of uh, ta uh, tackles there, um, you know, with Raymond, such a fascinating story being a, a wide receiver from Austria, um, a playing tight end and then making the transition to left tackle during a pandemic. Um, you know, he's an older guy. Uh, you know, he's going to be a 25 year old rookie. But at the same time, he's uh, younger in football years, uh, especially uh, playing offensive tackle. And so, uh, it, it, uh, you know, he's not the longest player. And that's something that we know uh, matters to a lot of teams, including uh, the Panthers, uh, under 33-inch arms. And that's something that uh, will, will be a factor when you talk about his age, you talk about his lack of length. Uh, but I, he's just a rock solid player who I think is going to come in and I think can start right away. And he, some teams even look like him <clears throat> best at guard. So uh, with Raymond, that, that's kind of, uh, you know, how teams look at him. Um, fall Lele, I, you know, again, we're talking about these guys in the second, third round, day two players for a reason. And a guy like fall Lele, uh, you know, it's, it, we just really haven't seen a guy like this before. That's uh, legit six, eight, three, he was 390 pounds at his pro day. Um, and it's just, he's a massive, massive guy. He, he's smooth for that size, but he's not, it's not like he's twitchy. It's not like he's, uh, you know, got this exceptional quickness. Um, and, and so there will be times where he can be rocked off balance or, you know, he'll leave that inside gap open, uh, and, and pass rushers, especially those sudden pass rushers, 
uh, even if they're undersized, uh, they're able to be too quick for him before he can get his big mitts on him. So it's it, fall lately is a tough one uh, because you could see him having some type of success, but you could also see where he's going to struggle and uh, especially against NFL speed. So fall lately, a lot of teams are just going to be like, I don't, I'm not quite sure. So we're out. And there are a lot of teams, you know, look at it that way. Uh, but, uh, and, he, and he's been a right tackle only, uh, probably the only position he's going to play. So uh, follow lately is a tough one. Um, I, I think Abraham Lucas is one of the more intriguing guys that teams have been really doing more homework on just because I, I think he played, because he played 44 straight years at right tackle, uh, four-year starter, four, over 40 starts. I think he was just kind of boring. You know, like the tape, it doesn't, it, there's nothing about it that excites you. Um, so I think, you know, he kind of maybe lost a, a little bit of the excitement around him. You know, it's, it's some guys, some offensive tackles, especially it's just hard to get excited about him. Abraham Lucas falls in that category, but then at the pro day or at the combine, you know, he had terrific uh, short shuttle, uh, terrific three cone, ran in the four nines in the 40. Uh, and this is a guy at 315 pounds and he's got almost 34 inch arms. So uh, there's a lot of things that we were like, oh, maybe we're short uh, selling this, uh, this player. And, you know, I think Abraham Lucas would not surprise me at all. If he goes in the second round, uh, maybe ahead of some of these other players uh, just because of how he tested and uh, how battle testy is uh, as well, being a four-year starter. Uh, and the other two guys that you mentioned, Petit Frere and Rasheed Walker, two big 10 guys who, um, you know, they, I, they worry me. I mean, Petit Frere, especially just because he's, his strength development and his technique development are just, they're, they're, they're lacking right now. And it's something that NFL level pass rushers will really be able to pick apart. But at the same time, he's, he still has some upside, you know, th there's, there's areas of his game where you can tell he's going to get better. It's just a matter of what's that ceiling, how much better will he get? And that's where there's differing opinions throughout the league. Uh, Petit Ferrer will be a better player, but just, you know, how much better that that's, that's, that's where the, I think the disconnect is from team to team on uh, Petit Ferrer where he's ultimately going to be drafted and, and what his uh, pro projection should be. And then with Walker, um, you know, his, the thing that really worries me with him is uh, the balance. And this is something that with, with uh, offensive linemen, we see it a lot. Guys that have balance issues in college struggle fixing that in the NFL when everything's everything moving faster, guys are more powerful, stronger with their hands. Um, it's just, it's, it, it doesn't, it rarely gets better. Now, can it get better? Sure. But that's the biggest thing that I worry about with with Rasheed Walker is the lack of balance. Uh, the, he'll lose that coordination, and that's something that that's that's tough to come back from. But at the same time, he has a projectable body. He's a long player. He's really fluid. I thought it was you know curious that he he chose not to work out at all. Uh, he, nothing at the combine. Nothing at the pro day. Uh, and I was told it was choice. Uh, now I don't. You know maybe there's an injury that they're just not disclosing. But I thought that was really interesting, an interesting choice for Walker uh, that, that he opted not to work out at all. So, uh, it, it, you know, again, we're talking about these guys as potential day two picks for a reason. Uh, and it's, it's, I think it's easy to poke holes in them. And it's trying to figure out, okay, which ones uh, have the fewest holes and which one do we project the best moving forward? Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. Uh, switching over to edge rushers, uh, when you first put Trayvon Walker on my radar back in January, I, I, my ears just kind of perked up a lot. I really didn't consider him like a top 10 player. And I watched, a, uh, you know, what was available on tape and whatnot and saw some of his games against the SEC competition. And again, I re really wasn't impressed. But then I did a little more digging and I watched these clinics, um, whether it was Kirby Smart or Dan Lenning or their new defensive coordinator, or, excuse me, co-defensive coordinator, Glenn Schumann. 
And the, the scheme at which Georgia plays is very like particular. And I can't necessarily, you can't necessarily blame the guy because he's doing what's asked of him for that specific scheme. And, and we've seen other edge rushers, uh, you know, who get the raw pass rush label, but Walker was a five-star prospect. He's been playing football since he was like seven years old. And so he's, he's not like a Jason Oway or a Ziggy Ansa who just started playing for a few years. Uh, and, and so for me, like when I first heard about it, I was thought it was a little um, ambitious, but then like I kept li- watching these clinics and kind of getting a better sense of what their scheme is asking him to do. And I kind of understand why he's being talked about ahead of potentially Hutchinson and Thibodeau. I, I mean, I, I am, I'm really glad you framed it like that. I think that, that's outstanding context that is important when you talk about these players Um you know, the NFL draft is it's not about what you've done. It's about what you think players can do. And obviously production matters. I mean, it, it's something that if it didn't matter, we wouldn't you know, we, we, we wouldn't care about how many you know, sacks the guy has or his pressure rate and things like that. But, uh, you know, above all, NFL teams are going to draft traits. And with Trevon Walker, I, I fell in love with the tape when, over the fall. Um, you know, just seeing him move, seeing the fluidity when he dropped, when, you know, there was a couple times against Auburn where they actually allowed him to rush. And it was like, oh, my gosh, who is this guy? Uh, and go and started, so I started doing my background work back in the fall and finding out, okay, this guy – uh, you know, big time uh, football player in high school. Oh, he led his basketball team to 75 straight wins, including state championships over a thousand career points. Hmm. That's interesting. Oh, he's got 35 and a half inch arms uh, and, and he's going to test off the charts. Hmm. Okay. I see those traits on film. I, I see that. And it's, it, it was a little frustrating because he's asked to hold the point of attack. He's asked to, uh, you know, play that five technique or play uh, inside uh, the tackle over uh, the inside uh, uh, shoulder of the tackle where uh, he, I think that really helped him develop as a run defender, uh, you know, cause he's able to lock out control uh, and make plays, but he is unproven as a pass rusher. There's no way around it. He's still developing, you know, what it takes to put together a pass rush sequence and to, uh, you know, get blockers off balance uh, with, with different uh, techniques. And so, there is projection involved. There is no doubt about it with Trevon Walker, but guys that are 6'5", 270 with 35 and a half inch arms and have the athletic traits that he does. It's just, it's very, very rare. And watching him in person at the combine, sitting there in the stands and watching him move around, like watching him do the hoop drill. I, I mean, I was just amazed. Uh, it's just really, really fascinating to watch a guy like that move. And so I, 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 I he was my number six overall player before the combine. Um, so just based off the tape, that, that's, uh, and, and I expected him to test well, but based off the tape, I thought this is, this is you know, my sixth overall player. And then obviously he blew up at the combine. And I, I think that it would be a surprise if he doesn't go in the top three picks. I, I think you look at one, two, three, one of those spots, I think they're going to jump on Trevon Walker. And I understand some of the apprehension with him just because he's unproven and the pass rush rate and all that. But again, let's think about what he's going to be and what he could be uh, and with that, I think it's easy to get excited about him. Dane, this class of corners is really good at the top end. I think we can all agree on that. Ahmad Gardner, McDuffie, Andrew Booth from Clemson, who I think is a little underrated by some. Tell us about this group in terms of playing on the perimeter, starting with Ahmad Gardner, better known as Sauce, who is an absolute eraser on tape out there for Cincinnati, taking away one side of the field. Is he as good as advertised? 
Yeah, with Ahmad Gardner, you know, I, so I, I'm a big Trent McDuffie fan. I really wanted to put him as my top corner. Um, and, you know, just talking, I spent a lot of time talking with him, and the, he's so smart. I mean, he might be the smartest corner prospect um, that I've, I've ever talked to. Been doing this for over 10 years now and talked to uh, hundreds and hundreds of the corners uh, as prospects. And I think McDuffie might be the smartest one I, I, I've ever had the chance to, uh, you know, sit down with. He, he's really, really bright. He knows what every single person on the defense is supposed to be doing. Uh, if the offense makes a slight change, he knows how to adjust, how to communicate that. Um, and, you know, you, you, you set it up. I mean, he's just not a big guy. He's got under 30 uh, inch arms and that's going to be a problem for uh, plenty of teams, especially when you talk about using a top 20 pick on a player like that. Um, and, and so that's why I, I, I did put McDuffie at two uh, and Ahmad Gardner. I put at one. I mean, sauce is, uh, four, four, one in the 40. When you're got a guy that's six, three, one ninety, moving like that. And he's got the tape that he does now I, for me, he was a little bit of a slow burn because, uh, it, you know, teams just didn't throw at him, uh, in college. And it, it, he, I, it was like 11% of the defensive targets for Cincinnati this year went towards sauce Gardner, which is obviously a very low number. Um, which also helped Kobe Bryant on the other side win the Jim Thorpe award. Uh, but, you know, it made it a little bit difficult because I wanted, I wanted to see him make plays. I wanted to see him go up against top receivers and it's, it's just hard to find uh, a lot of tape doing that. But, you know, by the time you get done with this tape and you watch him at the combine, things like that, you know, you, 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 you really buy into him being the top corner. Um, and he's got the confidence to match. Uh, there's no doubt about the, the energy that he brings, uh, to the field, to the locker room. So he is my top corner. Then I've got McDuffie and then I've got Stingley, who's a, a really talented player. And it's, you know, switch is 2021 and it's 2019 seasons. And, uh, we're talking about Derek Stingley as maybe being the number one overall pick. I, I mean, that 2019 season was so good, uh, that it feels like, you know, uh, 10 years ago now, but at the time, uh, I mean, it, watching him in that moment, it was it was a lot of fun. So uh, I still think there's a good chance he ends up in the top 10 because of that. I'd be remiss if I didn't have Dane Brugler on the line and ask about J.C. Horn. So I'm going to do that, Panthers fans. Dane, you studied Horn's game quite a bit when he played at South Carolina leading up to last year's draft. Carolina takes him number eight overall to the ire of many fans who wanted a quarterback. They didn't go that direction. Uh, the only thing I'm disappointed about with J.C. Horn is the injury, and that's not his fault because I only got two and a half games of tape to look at, and when I look at it, it's amazing tape. Now, granted, it's you know not the best teams in the world, but he's a rookie. He's coming in there playing the slot, playing outside on the X, playing back end, playing man press. What's your take on J.C. Horn heading into year two, which will kind of feel like a rookie year, at least in terms of you know wear and tear because he missed a little bit of time last year. Uh, I, yeah, I, I was really excited uh, to watch his rookie year. It's a, it's a bummer. We didn't get to see more of it, um, but excited to see what he looks like uh, now uh, this upcoming year, hopefully with a clean bill of health. Uh, we appreciate the most about him uh, is just the physicality that he plays with his aggressiveness. Um, it, it's something that whenever the ball is in the air, he feels like he has more ownership to it than the receiver. And that's the West way he plays. And, and it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes it'll work against him. He'll attract some penalties here and there, but you want your corners to feel that way. You want your corners to have that type of mindset where, Hey, the, that ball is mine. And if there's a completion against him, he takes it personally, uh, not, not to the level where it's going to plague him and it's going to follow him, but it will bother him to a point where he's you know, going to be extra motivated not to let it happen uh, the rest of that series. So, uh, and then, you know, I think 
with JC Horn, it was, well, okay, big guy, how is he going to run? Okay, well, he goes out and runs a great time, tests well. And so it's like, okay, you start to run out of reasons why this guy should not be uh, a top 10 pick and one of the first guys drafted. And it turns out he was. He was the first uh, first corner drafted last year. And uh, he was first defensive player drafted last year, actually. Yeah, now that I think of it, uh, which is kind of kind of crazy. Um, but, I mean, I, I there's – I, you know, at the time, uh, you know, I don't think it was like uh, that big of a surprise because, again, when you watch Horn, you see him work out, you see all these things, and you look at his resume, you just you run out of reasons why he shouldn't be uh, the first defensive player drafted. He, he is that talented of a player. So, uh, unfortunately, we're robbed of that uh, during his rookie year, but I am excited to see what, uh, what he can give us this year in year two. And uh, as we wrap up here with Dane Brugler of The Athletic, and Dane, again, uh, this draft guide is phenomenal. I'm a I'm obviously a big believer in the environment, but even I had to go out and go to FedEx and print this uh, because uh, I don't know. I just like reading hard copies as opposed to uh, off the web. But uh, as we wrap up, I just kind of want to get, you don't have to give me, you know, all the secrets here, but like, when do you start putting this together? Like, is it done in the off season? Like as far as just compiling, especially like the background info, because I feel like a lot of work goes into that. Oh, no doubt. I mean, honestly, it's an ongoing process. I mean, you know, when I try, when I talk to Trent McDuffie, uh, you know, I've got an hour phone call with him going over stuff. I will, I will talk to him about guys that are at Washington and, you know, the guys that are coming up next year and get some Intel that way, you know, like that it's, it, it, it is an ongoing process to always be finding out information. Um, and so I, I really can't, you know, give you like a certain time frame because it, it really is uh, nonstop throughout the year. And once we put this draft to bed, um, you know, starting in May and June, that's, that's important months for me for laying the foundation for the next year. Um, just, you know, that, that's, that's kind of, you know, lay the groundwork. That's, that's the foundation of where you start um, before you really dive into the, the tape and understand wh- who these guys are um, is just uh, getting a better sense for who the top guys are going to be and who the top seniors are. And then, Throughout the season, that'll change a little bit based off of what happens on the field. Uh, and then throughout the draft process, uh, you know, January through April, it'll change a little bit more. Um, you know, most of the haze in the barn at that point. But, uh, you know, guys based off of how they test and uh, how they work out, that, that will, you know, tweak some things here and there, uh, make you go back to the tape to figure it out. So, you know, it's, it's, it's I think maybe that's why I love doing this is because, every day is different for me. Uh, you know, one day, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a lot of tape. Another day it's, uh, you know, a lot of phone calls and things like that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I honestly, I wake up every day with just this, this passion of, Oh, I can't wait to see, I'm going to find a player today. You know, I'm going to find a guy, uh, and just, you know, watch a player that I haven't seen before and see, okay, this, this guy, you know, why is no one talking about this guy? And I think this guy's going to be a player. And that, that, that's really what, you know, gets me excited waking up every day. So it's, it's a year round process and a lot of work. And hopefully that shows in the final product. Well, it's demonstrated in your work, not just the sheer volume of it, but the quality at theathletic.com. Dane Brugler is our guest here. One of the best draft analysts on the planet. Go subscribe to theathletic.com today and check out Dane on Twitter at DP Brugler. He's posted this beast. It's called The Beast, the 2022 NFL Draft Guide. Available now, 400 scouting reports, 1,700 prospects. He's got NFL verified data for all of them and some background work on these guys as well. It's a worthwhile read, and go subscribe to The Athletic today. Dane, as always, thanks for joining us here on Blue Wire. Enjoy the draft process. We'll catch up down the road, man. Anytime, John, Billy. I really appreciate it, guys. Dane Brugler from The Athletic. 
always on top of things in terms of draft analysis, goes deeper than just about anybody on the planet in terms of the nuances, breaking down these prospects. And again, go to theathletic.com and subscribe and get The Beast, his draft guide. It's amazing. Coming up next, we got more content, folks. Panthers fans, this is a good one. Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus makes his first visit to the Roar podcast. Billy Marshall sits down with Austin one-on-one to talk NFL right here on Blue Wire. Welcome back to another episode of The Roar by Blue Wire. Continuing our draft coverage. Really happy to introduce Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus to the show. You can find him on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale. It's G-A-Y-L-E. Austin, what's going on? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It's uh, you know, it's getting down to you know nuts and bolts of draft season. And you know, you and I, we've been chatting about this uh for about a week now, but uh I just want to get like your your perspective on you know, this entire draft class as a whole, uh, because obviously there's people who aren't big fans of it. And uh, there, there's others who are, you know, fans of it. I personally think the draft class is a little underrated. Certainly the quarterback position is not great, but overall, I do think there's talent to be found. Yeah. I think there's a lot of depth in this class more than there is high end talent. I think you find that at a lot of the positions as you kind of do wholesale positional valuations, right? I'd even say as good as this edge class is, I think it's more depth than it is miles Garrett, like a, like type of talents. You know what I mean? And I also think with the receiver class, I think we saw Lance Zierlein of NFL.com recently say it's a tad overrated. And I think I'm with him. I think there are a lot of high end wide receiver twos in this class, maybe, guys that develop into wide receiver ones at next level, but I don't think I take any receiver in this class ahead of Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, and Jamar Chase from the previous year. And even look at the running back class, tight end class, not a lot of elite talent, but there's good depth. I think where there is like elite talent probably is offensive tackle. I I think there are legitimate blue chip prospects at offensive tackle, but quarterback class, more, more depth than there is high end talent Uh, safety, very similar. I I think it's a, it's a class that just doesn't have blue chips. Right. And when you're coming off a class where three receivers, you'd call blue chip guys that are top 10 type of players, five quarterbacks go in the first round. Uh, you, You have some offensive tackle talent from the previous year as well. You have Michael Parsons, Patrick Sertan, like when you have that, those types of players coming in the previous draft, I think the juxtaposition makes it seem that this, this draft class is a bit weaker, but I think there is depth, right? And I think day two, that 15 to you know 40 slots going to have a lot of talented players, but the gap between the player picked at 20 and the player picked at 50 is thinner than it has been in a long time. Yeah, for sure. And one player I want to get right to, and this is a player that uh, has caused quite a bit of uh, you know, polarizing opinions on. And uh, I know you made the comp that you believe he is a bigger LaVisca Chenault. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the player I'm referencing is Arkansas wide receiver, Traylon Burks. Uh, I'll get to my kind of, you know, uh, evaluation of him and kind of how I see him projecting. But, you know, as far as what you see in him, I know you, I don't know if you're allowed to reveal this, but you did speak to some of the coaches there about kind of how he was uh, used uh, and utilized within that offense. But, the draft is a projection at the end of the day. And obviously he showed all he could show within that scheme. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of up to us as evaluators to kind of project it forward. So as you look at Burks and how he projects and what his evaluation of it, of him is, what do you, what do you see right now? 
My thing is, and I think the comp that I have for him is a LaVisca Chenault Jr. Plus, right? Okay, fair. Better way of framing it is, you know, what we thought LaVisca Chenault Jr. could be. You know, I think he had a lot of hype going into that draft. People felt that, man, he's got, you know, 220 pounds. He's got good speed. He's got good athleticism. If he can stay healthy and, and develop as a receiver, he can be a threat on the outside and the inside, not just a gadget type. And he obviously hasn't been that in the NFL. His ball skills are a little bit worse. And he, he really hasn't developed as an outside receiver, right? He's a slot only type in the NFL. I think with Traylon Burks, I, I, I think he's a lot better than what LaVisca Chenault Jr. is, but it's a similar body type to what he has. And I also think there's some similar polish. I don't think he's an uber polished receiver. He's got better ball skills, way better ball skills than what LaVisca Chanel Jr. has. And I also feel that I, I, he's going to hold that weight really well. He's a true 225, right? It's weight that he had to get down to, not work up to. And I think as he gets into an NFL locker room, that's only going to get you know further improved. He's a really high character player as well. Talking to the Arkansas head coach, Sam Pittman, high character guy on and off the field. And you know he says that his best role in the NFL was the slot. That's where they played him at Arkansas. That's where they felt like they could have success, either the slot or the outside receiver to the boundary where you're going to get a lot of one-on-one situations and so much of his deep ball success at Arkansas were actually checks you know a lot of these go balls uh for Traylon Burks were not in the original game plan they were hey if we get cover zero we're checking Burks to a go and we're going to throw it deep and you often saw that and he obviously has a lot of success on that but going into this game you know, going into the games he'd have what he called like the Burks plan, which is 10 to 15 plays. We're going to make sure we get him the ball as fast as we can. He felt that if we're not getting him the ball early in the snap, we're doing a disservice or early and often we're doing a disservice to our offense. And I think teams will view him similarly, right? I think they'll want to get the ball in his hands, leverage the yak ability. And will he ever be like this uber successful downfield receiver with a full route tree? I, I think that would be more projection, right? I'll tell you what he is right now. Really good after catch and would be fantastic in a slot only role, you know, getting eating at the short and intermediate levels of the field. Could he be something deeper down the field? I think absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And one big difference I see between him and some of the other run after catch bigger receivers that we've seen in recent years who haven't worked out, whether it's Hakeem Butler or Nikhil Harry is he did it in the SEC and some of those clips that you have seen, uh, you know, that's made its way around Twitter against Alabama or you know, some of these other, you know, high level programs that are in the SEC. I think uh, being able to show that as opposed to doing it in the big 12 or defenses are a little more questionable, especially if you're not facing like Baylor or um, I mean, even Oklahoma's defense isn't necessarily the greatest right now, but you know, for me, I, I just I I do think that he is a wide receiver too. I don't necessarily see him as like a wide receiver one because if you did if you watch that Georgia game where uh, they did actually have uh, they sent coverages tilted towards his side, he did struggle in that game. And I believe uh, in the PFF draft guide, uh, which everyone should go and order, it's a really great resource. Uh, that was one of his worst games of uh, 2021 uh, that you guys mentioned. So. Um, yeah, to me, like, I, I don't, the reason I kind of disagreed with the Chanel comp was uh, I see Chanel more of like an inter, short and intermediate guy. And the way Chanel runs after the catch is much more of like a bully style. Like he looks to run guys over uh, with Burks. It's, it's much more speed. And that's kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know if I have a comp for him. Some people have thrown out Josh Gordon, AJ Brown. I don't necessarily agree with those, but uh, I can certainly see him playing similar as far as like how he gets vertical and, uh, you know, the intermediate part of the field, whether it's on slants and digs. So, um, yeah. And I'm with you. And I think you bring up good points, right? I think it's tough to find a comp for Traylon Burks. And I think player comparisons in general are more of like, obviously a media driven narrative. If you ever read the book, I, I don't know the name off the top of my head, but it's the book about um, the, 
the former basketball GM, I'm losing his name, but he talks about how they like ruled out player comps in their scouting service or scouting department because it often led them to being higher on players that they shouldn't and lower on players that they should. Uh, they actually remove it from their process. And I think it's only a media driven narrative to kind of provide that like instant contextual analysis of a player and like your opinion of him. I don't think he's going to have Lewis Chenault's career. I think it's just a similar body type that I'm attracted to, the similar yak ability. And he can be a bully, right? I don't think he runs like a bully, but I think he can be. And I think he does strike that same fear in, in opposing cornerbacks yeah for sure and, and uh, just to close out you know the burks uh, talk here i i agree i, I certainly i i want to be clear that i i do think that he is a projection um you know for me i just i see a guy who uh, did it at you know a university a program you know over the past like four or five years hasn't really been uh you know <laughs> winning i mean and they certainly have shown it under sam Pittman's regime so i think he's going to be a pretty solid player and again i've heard some uh, some talk that he's going to potentially drop out of the first round which uh again fair enough i'm not here to project where he's going to go i just i, I think he's uh, the type of receiver that will thrive especially next to wide receiver one um but let's move on to another player that's kind of a little polarizing and a guy who's gotten some talk as uh, potentially going number one overall. Um, I don't know if that's going to come to fruition. Uh, Trayvon Walker, the defensive end slash interior defensive lineman from Georgia. He, he lined up in a variety of different roles. And uh, I, I can certainly see why, you know, your colleague Sam Mons and I were having this discussion on Twitter today. I can certainly see why you would be frightened to take a guy like him in the top half of the draft and certainly number one overall. Um, and, but, but to me, the kind of comparison I see, and I don't, I think they're different players is Rashawn Gary coming out a few years ago, where uh, a lot of people um, you know, thought that was a little bit of a reach because Gary at Michigan, it's similar to Walker five-star prospect didn't really have the great production at, uh, at, at a, you know, blue chip program. Um, what do you, it's going to be tough to project him. I, I totally get that, but you guys seem much lower in him than the, like the consensus as well. Yeah, with Trayvon Walker, I don't even think the way I'd frame it right is it's tough to project him. It's that you have to project him. You know, he has you know has fewer than 600 career snaps playing outside the tackles, which is a third of what Aiden Hutchinson has or Kayvon Thibodeau has, right? Like he just hasn't played a lot of what you probably expect him to play in the NFL. He doesn't have a lot of true pass rushing opportunities and he hasn't won as a true pass rusher off the edge nearly as often as some of these other guys. That's not to say that he, you know, can't do it. It's more that he hasn't yet. And I don't think that makes him a tough projection. It just makes him, you have to, where you look at some of these other guys, right? Aiden Hutchinson, for example, there's less to project. You've seen him do a lot of what you are going to want him to do in the NFL. You kind of know what you're getting. And I think can't miss is a tough, is a phrase I like to kind of steer away from. Honestly, I think it's more that it's, it's there, there, you know, more of what you're getting right. And there's less, you're checking more boxes, right? Character, production, athleticism, size, length, these different things that you can kind of check with Trayvon Walker. I just don't think you have the reps, like the pure experience in certain alignments. And you just don't have like the production on tape, even when he is going two way goes right against Evan Neal. There's some reps that you had this previous year and it's just not having the success that you want, right? With Walker, then you ask the question, why, you know, why is he not, you know, lining purely up on the edge and dominating sec competition? I think some, a lot of that is his usage, right? They liked him as a run defender. He's probably the best run defending edge defender in this class. Like they really wanted him head up or inside the offensive tackle and, 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 and defending the running run first. You talk to Georgia players. It's all they care about on Tuesdays. They call it bloody Tuesday. So they only defend the run for an entire practice. So I, I do think that Trayvon Walker, because you have to project him, 
it makes him more difficult of an evaluation than others, but I don't think it's a tougher projection. He's a rare athlete, one of one type of athlete that teams are going to flock to and likely will go or should go in the top five because you don't get those type of builds, those type of bodies, those type of athletes outside of the top five oftentimes. And you're going to trust your positional coaches to one, play him where he should play two, and get the production out of him. And people billing him as this high ceiling, hot, low floor guy, I think is wrong. It's hard to have a low floor when you're that big and that athletic. I think he can offer a lot as a high floor player in the NFL. I think it's his technique that needs to improve. And honestly, he just needs reps, 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 experience. It's serious. You know, the position in every pre-draft process that gets talked about so much about development is QB, right? Quarterback, oh, you got to develop him. Give him one or two years. He'll be great. Every other position's like that. And Trayvon Walker is very similar. You need him to develop in the NFL, develop these skill sets to be the player that he can be. And obviously, I think there's going to be a team as high as, you know, Jacksonville at one or even Detroit at two that's willing to bet on that yeah and, and I'll be curious especially if he goes to Detroit because uh, Aaron Glenn he comes from the Saints uh, defense where you know Cam Jordan was a, I don't think he's a similar type prospect but Jordan I remember uh, in 2011 draft when I was like first like actually reading a draft magazines from Nolan L. Rocky and a few others he was a guy who didn't really have much production and it was a projection with him too and, and obviously depending on who he talked to Cam Jordan is potentially a Hall of Famer now so um yeah no I I, I trust me I, I totally get it and I'm glad you mentioned uh, the part about the bloody Tuesday that they uh, work on stopping the run and uh, their code I posted a clip of this last night their co-defensive coordinator now Glenn Schumann who was previously the linebackers coach really young guy uh, did a, a clinic about a couple of years ago where um, they had to like kind of evolve their fronts and their schemes because uh, back then at Alabama, they were getting gashed so much by mobile quarterbacks. You remember Johnny Menzel just completely like torching Nick Saban's defenses. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was uh, Trevor Knight at Oklahoma, like in a sugar bowl game where he just kind of went off. So essentially like they want to make sure they're protecting like the interior. So quarterbacks don't, you know, kind of take off from the a gaps and that's why they have their those really fast linebackers whether it's walker or um quay walker excuse me uh tyndall or nicobe dean where they those guys can just scrape and catch him from from behind so i i think the scheme was going to play a part of it too and that's kind of like where like a lot of us i don't know maybe you talk to a lot of coaches so uh you probably have more intel than me but a lot of like people on the outside they don't really talk to the coaches at those programs or go to practices like scouts do and really getting like a better evaluation of, you know, what type of player he can be. I would agree. I, I think so much of the pre-draft process, because it's what we have the most touch points to is media, right. And media, the convert, you know, I have, you know, the conversation is less so about what he can do and what his role will be and what, what we need to do to improve him. And, and if he's drafted by this team, he could be this type of player. If he's drafted under this coach, I think he'll have more success. So much, so few, you know, little of the conversation is that it's more like my wide receiver two is this, and my wide receiver four is this, and this is my top edge. This is my white edge four. And, you know, it, it gets painted so much more black and white than anyone in the league sees it. No one in the league sees the draft as black and white as the media kind of projects it with risers and fallers and day three gems. Like it's more so who's going to fit into my offense? Who can I ask to do the things I need to fit? You know, I, I need to fill a need for and, and do it at a high level right now. Are there rankings? Are there big boards? Yeah. And I think that's how the media kind of started on this by getting some of the layers of that process, but so much more of it. And you goes back to the interview process, right? You talk to these guys, these players that are going into the draft and, they say, this team wants to play me at 4-3-N. This team wants to play me at Will Linebacker. And no one in the scouting process talking about that, right? No one's talking about where you're actually going to play him. You're just like, this guy's an edge defender, and he'll be a really good one. Like, I think 
again, the media drives and and what what fans care about most is, you know, what do you think this player, you know, do you think this player is good? Who does he remind you of? And how high is he going to go? And that's where a lot of the depths of the conversation end up. No, for sure. You're, you're totally right. And, and that's a good point because a lot of other, like, like the Panthers, for instance, and the Bengals too, they have their coaches kind of be a big part of their scouting process. So, uh, and they, they don't really get started on this until like February. And, and that's kind of why you see sometimes, you know, the change in big board rankings or mock drafts or whatever. Um, looking at uh, a couple other positions here and uh, we'll kind of take it more uh, broadly, let's go back to receivers because again, it's it's a very fascinating class, and I agree with you and Lance Irland that it is overrated. Um, but how do you kind of project a guy like Drake London? Uh, because to me, I, I see a guy that kind of was let down by his QB, uh, and he has a lot of elements that scare people because they see, you know, another guy from the Pac-12, whether it's Nikhil Harry, where he's kind of a lot of his work is after the catch, but. To me, I saw a separation on film. I saw the footwork. What did you see from him? And say so that was, I'm sorry, I missed the receiver name. Uh, Drake London, sorry. Yeah, Drake London, the comp I have for him, and, and people hate me for it, but I have Michael Thomas. And it's more from a usage standpoint, right? I think Michael Thomas in the NFL, why he's so successful or why he's had a lot of success is his usage in the slot, right? He plays over 50%, 60% of his reps from the slot because he can work at the short and intermediate levels of the football field, great in contested catch situations. And I also think he's a physical body to bring down after the catch. If you're going to ask Drake London to play the Mike Evans role in the NFL, I don't think he's going to have that much success because I don't think he has the same you know, stride length and the speed down the field to win the vertical route tree. I think I'm more interested in him playing at the short and intermediate levels of the football field and having a ton of success as this volume pass catcher, right? Exactly what he was at USC for the first three years of his career there. And then even in his last year, playing more on the outside, Clay Hilton wanted to play him on the outside to kind of help his production. Um, you saw him getting 13, 15 targets a game, mostly on the underneath. 46% of his receptions last year came within nine yards of the line of scrimmage. I mean, it's because that's where he's best utilized. I do think that people projecting London as this deep, big vertical threat that can win on the outside and be this consistent Julio Jones type. I've seen some crazy comps for Drake London. I just don't buy it. I don't buy the Mike Evans comps either. I think he's Mike Evans wins down the field. London wins within nine yards of the line of scrimmage and can work after the catch. So I hope, you know, I still see him as the wide receiver one in this class because he has a lot of projectable traits and I buy into like what I'm getting. I know exactly what I'm getting and I can make that work in my offense. I think other people will flock to the Ohio state guys or maybe more of the athletic big guys. I'm a big fan of Drake London's. No, I, I am too. I, I totally, I think he has you know, the necessary skills. I, I don't agree with those comparisons either to Evans or, you know, some of the other lofty expectations. I, when I saw him, especially after the catch, I thought he looked very similar to Denver Broncos, Brandon Marshall. Uh, I know that's a comp you guys made in your draft guide. So yeah. Uh, another player that I want to get to some of these day two, day three prospects, uh, whether it's Khalil Shakir, Jalen Tolbert, um, you know, John Mechie is a guy that, you know, he had a pretty decent hype, but, you know, the injury is a question mark. Um, that next year, after like, you know, the five or six guys that are currently uh, projected to go in the first, like, which guy stands out to you? I'm a big Chris Olave fan, man. I, I really do think Chris Olave is, uh, is a talented, talented receiver. He's actually my wide receiver two behind Drake London. And then I have Jameson Williams as my wide receiver three, moving Wilson to four. But with Chris Olave, 
the reason I can't have him ahead of London and I'd even have him ahead of, I'll be mean, behind Jameson Williams if Williams didn't get hurt is he's not a yak type, right? Only nine broken tackles in his career at Ohio state. That's like rare. <laughs> it's hard to only miss that, you know, force that many missed tackles. But a lot of that is because he wins down the field, right? You don't need to have the production he had with such little yards after the catch is speak. It just speaks to how he can create separation on the deeper route tree, right? He can win the vertical route tree. He can win against off coverage, zone coverage, and man concepts, highest yards, out run at outside receiver of any receiver in this class of the last two years, even with not having an elite target share, right? With Garrett Wilson, obviously Jackson Smith, the Jigba eating into that target share this past year, like Olave is different. And if he was better after the catch, force more missed tackles, I think he'd be this complete weapon that would be more of a consensus wide receiver one. Really fast, great ball skills, efficient feet, way more efficient feet than what Garrett Wilson has right now. I think Wilson has a lot of foot fire, a lot of dancing, a lot of freelancing, cuts a rug yeah. a lot too much on his routes to a point where, yeah, that's great. And he creates a lot of separation because of it, but he mostly wins because he's dynamic and can afford to have inefficient feet because he is such a dynamic player and can make plays after the catch. Olave probably can't afford to have that efficient, inefficient feet, but he doesn't have them at all. I think the comp for him I have is Calvin Ridley, who is a very similar player in the NFL before obviously getting suspended. Never, never really was a yak type, right? But consistently won the deeper parts of the route tree. Let me ask you this, because obviously you guys have, you know, your own data and you guys put together, you know, your scouting uh, in a very you know efficient, and effective way. How much do you guys use like some of this other like data that the fantasy guys use, like target share or, you know, dominator rating? I, I do think that target share can be helpful, right? It gives you an understanding of like not not like a pure yards per route run. I think I one of my favorite data points from a production standpoint is yards per route run over kind of like expected target rate, right? You can have, you know, yards per route run over expected based on alignment, right? You, you're going to average more yards per route run if you play on the outside versus you play the slot and, and based on target rate, right? If you're targeted every play, you're going to have a different yards per route run average than obviously if you're only targeted on five out of 10. So I think there's more to do with efficiency and production around how often you're targeted and where you line up and also what personnel you're in, right? You're, if you're running a lot of 11 personnel, you know, with three wide receiver sets, your yards per route run is going to be impacted versus running a lot of 10 or a lot of five wide. So we've looked a lot at that too, to just do a better job of looking at production and, and, and giving more of an expected tier of production based on usage, alignment, and personnel. As for dominator rating, I think it could be leveraged at every position, not necessarily. It only kind of right now gets leveraged at receiver. And I think giving it a specific number is a little bit ridiculous, but Derek Stingley Jr.'s dominator rating, if they did it for cornerbacks, would be insane. He had the best true freshman season we probably will ever see from a cornerback in the SEC again at 18 years old, going against Devontae Smith, Seth Williams, Van Jefferson, and dominating, like being incredible. I know he allowed, I think, over 200 yards to Devontae Smith in that game, but a lot of that was that one play where he's looking to the sideline or whatever it and was. he like, slipped, right? Yeah. yeah, he slipped. Like, Stingley had a season that was so dominant at 18 years old in the SEC that I honestly don't think we'll see it again. And that speaks volumes to a player's projection, right? To have an immature frame, even an immature mindset, not have a lot of experience at the collegiate level and have that success is really is really rare to see, right? I think Worst is very similar. He was a player, an offensive tackle for Iowa, obviously, had a lot of success when his body wasn't fully developed, which speaks to, man, imagine when this guy turns 24. You know, imagine when this guy gets to 25, 26, his peak, the type of frame he'll have and, and what he'll have with all the experience under his belt now i'm really glad you put that into you know in, into context because i do think it's important and and some of these um you know opinions that come from the fantasy community i'm not you know diminishing it they're very important data points but sometimes i, I think they get a little bit overvalued and um and i want before we quickly move to another position I, staying with receivers 
when you have a situation uh, or a guy like Jameson Williams, who, I mean, let's be honest, he was going to be wide receiver four at Ohio State if he stayed. I mean, he was going to be behind the two guys who came out this year and, um, you know, JSN. So when he does move to Alabama and he has a success, he does. Uh, does that kind of point a little bit of a red flag that why couldn't he break through at Ohio State where, you know, Brian Hartline is like the arguably the best wide receiver coach, not only in college football, but maybe even the entire football world. Yeah, it raises questions, right? But I think it's questions that media maybe don't have the opportunity to answer, but league does. Like the first person I'm calling about Jameson Williams, if I do want to raise that concern, is Brian Hartline, right? Why isn't Jameson Williams seeing the field? Is it his body wasn't developed? Was he still battling through injuries, right? You can answer a lot of these questions by just having more connection to him. And I think with Williams, you turn on the tape and just on the outside looking in, I think he could be the wide receiver one in this class if he doesn't tear his Achilles in the national championship. I honestly feel like he's just such a different mover, has different speed at the position, controlled speed and will win so quickly in the route right i think that's that's so impressive he's one of the better yak receivers in this class too i think that gets underrated when compared to guys like calvin austin and Traylon burks and the other parts of this too is that the injury is going to be a concern right recovering from that how much of your rookie season are you missing are you you know missing on entire offseason some of that will impact your development in the nfl already now with a guy that maybe does have development concerns because he doesn't see the field early on at ohio state i would definitely reach out to heartline though you'd reach out to ryan day you talk to jameson about it you talk to different people to see hey what are the reasonings for it because sometimes those reasons aren't excuses necessarily and are actually like verifiable reasons for why he's not seeing the field because there were some damn good football receivers you know receivers there at ohio state as well yeah, for sure. And I, I again, I, I totally get why people think don't think it's a big deal, but I just would like to question why it happened. And, um, you know, closing out receivers here, uh, you know, I saw you again on NFL Network uh, this morning and you made the comp of uh, Golden Tate for Western Michigan receiver Sky Moore. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of his. I don't know what it is about some of these players who come from like these smaller programs. I don't know. Well, it's not necessarily a small program, but um, it, it's a division one FPS program, but I don't know. Like he just, he, he seemed to have a pretty good idea of how to beat press coverage. And he had, yes. you know, the short area quickness to do it. And I don't know, like he, he just, he looked very natural at creating separation. 100%. I, I said this on the podcast that if he plays for a power five school, I think he's more consistently mocked in the first round. I honestly think it's the small school stuff that drags him down, at least from a perspective, you know, just from like outside looking in, right. Maybe teams don't buy into that as much as you know the media does, but I really do think that's one of the bigger reasons why he's lower on boards. They did. He's also an early declaration or early declaration, right? So he didn't get an opportunity to play at any of these East West or senior bowl. So you didn't get to see him against top flight competition with him. The golden Tate comp, I think is before and after the catch and also speaks to just the kind of size profile he has five foot ten ish but also 195 five foot ten which isn't tall for receivers right but 195 pounds clears the bar 31 inch arms clears the bar for outside receivers and also over 10 inch hands a 146 10 yard split 97th percentile among wideouts that's rare and that speaks to the shake and the releases he's able to pull off at the line of scrimmage and also what he's able to do after the catch sky Moore easily could come out of this class as the most productive receiver in the right role if fed a lot of opportunity. And I don't think he needs to be positioned or solely positioned as a slot in the NFL. I think he has inside outside versatility that he'll gain in the NFL as as teams start to buy into him. Yeah, for sure. And as we close out here, give me like one or two receivers who maybe aren't being um, kind of named and they aren't necessarily going to go day one or day two uh, that you have your eye on. Yeah, big one for me. And it's a late, it's a late, probably a late day three player. And Mike, my podcast co-host isn't as high on him, but I really like Bo Melton. 
Bo Melton, the Rutgers, Rutgers yeah. doesn't have a lot of polish. He it was from Jersey, four star from Jersey that had offers to go to Michigan. He had offers to go to all these like bigger power five schools, but he stayed at Rutgers because he's a big Jersey guy. And I think that, you know, doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but I think it does speak to why he's playing at Rutgers, right? Sometimes you have that question. Why is Calvin Austin playing at Memphis? Why is Sky Moore playing at Western Michigan? Melton's playing at Rutgers, not because he didn't get offers, but it's because he wanted to stay in New Jersey and he's got really good speed. Team said, he told me he, teams want to want him to play in the slot, but I think he could be a really productive slot player in the NFL. The comp I had for him was Eddie Royal. I think a guy that creates separation, has good speed, has not great size, but okay size. I think he can immediately impact the team from the slot, uh, good athleticism for the position. I think another receiver that I like kind of in that tier, I, I, I'm buying the dip a bit on Justin Ross. Justin Ross, in my opinion, is getting kind of wrongly pushed down in, 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 in the draft for not having a lot of production over the last few years. It's kind of similar to George Pickens, right? And that you haven't seen a lot of his receiving production in later years due to injuries, but smooth receiver attacks the ball so well, some of the best ball skills in this class. And that's stuff that I'm just going to buy into. Yeah, I, I can see that. And it's tough with Ross because we don't have the medicals, at least publicly, and, and we shouldn't. That's obviously illegal. Um, but yeah, no, from what I saw, even this past year, he had he did have some moments where you look back and he looks like the same guy uh, when he broke out uh, as a freshman. But um, yeah, Austin, really appreciate coming on. I had a really good chat here talking about uh, some of the receivers in this draft class. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before you sign off? I really appreciate having me on as well. Make sure to follow, uh, you know, pff.com and check out my podcast tailgate with Mike and I, we talk about the draft as we roll in. And then in April 13th, we got a podcast coming out with Aiden Hutchinson, a four part podcast series with him. And it, that has been a blast to, to work through with him and his family. And I'm excited for the release. Yeah. Make sure to check out uh, the PFF draft guide. Once again, it's uh, do a lot of really good work. It's very easy, pretty easy to navigate. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.